I ask you to take your Bibles and turn to Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 6. Do you realize that God can do whatever He pleases? He doesn't need us. He can do it whenever He wants, whenever He wants. But often, God includes us. He includes us. He requires our faith. And that's why I want to point you to Mark chapter 6 before we get to our passage. Because I want to show you that God wants to use us. He wants us to have faith in Him so that He can show Himself strong. He's a loving God. He wants us to be able to see His greatness and and be able to trust Him more. Look at chapter 6, verse 5. And Mark makes an interesting observation here. And he could do no miracle there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he wondered at their unbelief. It seems to me that, I talked about this when we went through this passage, it seems to me that the reason that he did no miracle was because they lacked faith. The first part of verse 6, because of their unbelief. If they would have believed more, then he would have been willing to show his greatness more. It's not that he, he can't do it apart from our faith. It's not that He can't do things that we tie His hands in some way. But He does it in order to show His greatness more and, and He wants us to see that. So let's turn over to Mark chapter 9. And we'll see today that God displays His power to those who believe. God displays His power through those who believe. Look at chapter 9, verse 14. When they came back to the disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and some scribes arguing with them. Immediately, when the entire crowd saw him, they were amazed and began running up to greet him. And he asked them, What are you discussing with them? And one of the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought you my son, possessed with the spirit which makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it slams him to the ground and he foams at the mouth and grinds his teeth and stiffens out. I told your disciples to cast it out and they could not do it. And he answered them and said, O unbelieving generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring him to me. They brought the boy to him and when he saw him, Immediately the Spirit threw him into a convulsion, and falling to the ground, he began rolling around and foaming at the mouth. And he asked his father, How long has this been happening to him? And he said, From childhood. It has often thrown him both into the fire and into the water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, If you can, all things are possible to him who believes. Immediately the boy's father cried out and said, I do believe. Help my unbelief. When Jesus saw that a crowd was rapidly gathering, He rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You deaf and and mute spirit, I command you, come out of him and do not enter him again. After crying out and throwing him into terrible convulsions, it came out. And the boy became so much like a corpse 
that most of them said, He's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and raised him, and he got up. When he came into the house, his disciples began questioning him privately. Why could we not drive it out? And he said to them, This kind cannot come out by anything but prayer. From there, they went out and began to go through Galilee. And he did not want anyone to know about it, for he was teaching his disciples and telling them, The Son of Man is to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he has been killed, he will rise three days later. But they did not understand this statement, and they were afraid to ask him. God can do great things through those who put their faith in Him as expressed in their prayer. Why does Mark record this miracle? Is it just for the sake of the miracle? We've seen before that Jesus doesn't perform miracles just to, just to do them. He does them for a specific purpose. Sometimes it is to show His power, but here I think He has a specific purpose as to why he, 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 he brought this unclean spirit and, and put him out of this boy. I think it's to show the, the disciples' inability to, to act independently of God. That, that they can't just push God aside and say, I can do this on my own. They still need God, even though God has given them the gift, the ability to, to cast out these demons. Verses 14 through 19, we see the lack of faith in a given generation. The lack of faith in a given generation. The setting of the story begins in verses 14 and 15. In verse 14, we, we see these pronouns, which are a little bit tricky. It says, When they came back to the disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and some scribes arguing with them. So we have these, we have they twice. And then them twice. So who are we talking about here? Well, if you remember from last week, we were talking about the three disciples, Peter, James, and John, up at the top of the mountain, uh, Mount Hermon probably, and Jesus was transfigured up there. So now, here's how we understand this. When they, Jesus and the three disciples, came back to the other nine disciples, they, the three disciples, saw a large crowd around them, the other nine disciples and some scribes arguing with the nine disciples who remain. So, so picture the three disciples at the top, Peter, James, and John, with Jesus, and these other nine, while that's all happening, they're down here arguing with these scribes. And we find out what they're arguing about uh, shortly. But what we notice first is verse 15, that the crowd was amazed when they saw Him, when they saw Jesus. Immediately when the entire crowd saw Him, and if you have a New American Standard, it's capitalized, so you know that it's talking about Jesus. They were amazed and began running up to greet Him. Now, why are these people amazed at seeing Jesus? Well, it could be that He was still shining from having shown His glory on the top of the mountain. Remember when Moses came down from the mountain? He had seen a glimpse of the glory of God and when he came down, he still reflected that glory. They said, Moses, your face is shining. They, they saw him differently than they had seen him before. So it could be that people saw Jesus and saw this, this brightness that's coming from him and, and thought, wow, this is amazing. But I would suggest to you that that's probably not the case. 
And there's two reasons that I think that. One is neither Mark, Matthew, or Luke, the three that record the, the, this story and the, the story on the mountain of transfiguration, none of them talk about Jesus' face shining. So, so it's an argument from silence, which is a weak argument, but, but I think a stronger argument is in chapter 9, verse 9. So look up to verse 9 and notice what Jesus orders them to do. The three disciples, Peter, James, and John. As they were coming down from the mountain, He gave them orders not to relate to anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man rose from the dead. So what did Jesus tell them to do as He's coming down from the mountain? He says, do not tell anybody about what just happened until I rise from the dead. So, so don't tell anybody because there's going to be all sorts of confusion and, and I don't want that to happen. So don't tell anybody. Now, how effective would that command be, that prohibition be, if Jesus were shining like a light bulb? Okay, He comes down and says, now you guys don't tell them what's happening. And He comes down, His face is still shining. It's pretty obvious what just happened. Or at least there's something going on. So I don't think their amazement has to do with the fact that Jesus' face was shining. He showed them His glory up there and then he went back to his normal uh, human body, obviously. So why are they surprised? Why, in verse 15, are, is the crowd amazed? Well, I think it's probably because of the time of his coming. Have you ever been talking about someone, uh, maybe in a good light, not, not necessarily in a bad way, but talking about somebody, and then they come into the room? And what do we say? Oh, your ears must have been burning, Right? That's the same sort of idea that's probably happening here. They're talking to the to the nine disciples. This crowd is and saying, "Hey, why can't this 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 unclean spirit be thrown out? Why can't you do it? If Jesus were here, he probably could do it." And the scribes are saying, "No, he probably can't even do it." Uh, who knows what they're saying? But but as they're talking about it, Jesus comes down, and so now you see why they could be amazed. Oh, here you are. Look who's here, the one who we were talking about. We see um, what they were arguing about here in verses 16 through 19, the conflict that there was. And before we get into that, I want to show you how powerful this evil spirit was. Notice in verse 17 what he does. And one of the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought you my son possessed with the spirit, notice, which makes him mute. So, verse 17 tells us that this spirit makes him mute. He can't talk. Verse 18 tells us that it seizes him. It it causes him to to stiffen up. Verses 18 and 20 tells us that it slams him to the ground. It it makes him uh, lose control of his body. Verses 18 and 20 also talk about him foaming at the mouth. Verse 18, grinding. uh, it causes him to grind his teeth. And then verse 20, it talks about him having a convulsion. And 26 talks, calls it a terrible convulsion. Verse 20 says that it rolls him around, it throws him into the fire, it throws him into the water. Verse 26 says that it causes him to cry out. So what we have here is a powerful work of an evil spirit. That he's actually taken control of this boy's body, this young man's body. It could be, it could be a grown man, who knows, but it's... It's the son of a father. That's all we know. So, could be a young boy. Could be a uh, a young man. 
But the conflict arises uh, when the scribes see that the disciples can't cast out this demon. Notice what happens uh, here in verse 17. Uh, actually, the verse, end of verse 18. I told your disciples to cast it out, and they could not do it. Why were the disciples not able to cast out this evil spirit? Certainly, Christ had given the authority to do it. Turn back to chapter 3. I'll show you. Christ had given the disciples. He had sent them out and said, Here, I'm giving you authority to cast out demons in My name. Chapter 3, verse 14. And He appointed twelve so that they would be with Him and that He could send them out to preach and to have authority to cast out demons. So Jesus had given them this derivative authority. And now in chapter 6, verse 13, notice chapter 6, verse 13, we see that the disciples actually use this this ability, this authority to do what, what Christ wanted. He sent them out in groups of two. And notice what happens in verse 13 of chapter 6. And they were casting out many demons and were anointing with oil many sick people and healing them. So the authority to do so was there. The history was there. They had already done it before. So why in chapter 9 were they unable to cast out this demon? Well, in verse 19, we get a glimpse into Christ's answer for us. Look at verse 19 of chapter 9. And He answered them and said, O unbelieving generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? We get a glimpse into into Jesus' answer here. Why couldn't the disciples cast out this demon? It was because of their lack of faith. Now, it's difficult in verse 19 to see who exactly He's talking about because He says He answered them. The them there could refer to the crowd because the, the man who brought the Son before Jesus was one of the crowds. So Jesus could be saying to the whole crowd, Oh, you unbelieving generation, why don't you trust? Why don't you believe in Me? But more likely, he is talking to his nine disciples who couldn't cast this demon out. So he, takes, he looks over to these nine men and says, how can you be so unbelieving? How can you still lack faith? Now that seems to be in keeping with what we've seen in the rest of the book, right? That Jesus is so, uh, I don't know how to say this, but frustrated with their unbelief, Right? They, they, uh, they don't understand that they have Jesus there who can provide for the feeding of the 4,000 when they've just seen Him do the same thing with the feeding of the 5,000 with the Jews. And then you go to when, when they're out on the boat with Jesus and they only have one loaf of bread and even for Jesus to feed those 12, those 13 people, they're still saying, how are we going to have enough bread to feed us while we're out on this water? And Jesus says, do you still have no faith? Do you still lack understanding with what I'm doing here and who I am and what I can do? And now he turns to what I, I would think is these nine disciples and say, Oh, unbelieving generation. 
How long am I going to put up with you? When will you start believing me and trusting me? So he gives us a little bit of a window into why they couldn't cast this demon out. It was because of their lack of faith. Now, uh, we see in verses 20 through 22 the abiding evil in a generation. The abiding evil in a given generation. They brought the boy to him, and when he saw him, immediately the spirit threw him into convulsion. And falling to the ground, he began rolling around and foaming at the mouth. And he, Jesus, asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. He has often thrown him both into the fire and into the water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. We saw the power of the evil spirit, all the things that it can do to control a person's body. But notice the purpose. In verse 22, why he does all these things. It has often thrown him both into the fire and into the water. Notice, to destroy him. Or we could say, in order to destroy him. He's doing it so that he can destroy this person. Spirits, evil spirits love to, to um, take people who are made in the image of God and destroy them. And so he's hoping for an opportunity. That's why he's been doing these things over the years. It's like the the legion of demons in chapter 5. Remember when Jesus cast out that legion and put put them into the swine? They ran over the cliff. Well, well, that legion of demons caused that man to do what? Remember he was hanging out around the tombs? And he was gashing himself with stones. He was... was, uh, acting in a way that would would appear that he was trying to commit suicide when really the spirit had taken control of him the evil spirit it was it was this evil spirit's desire to destroy this young man and so we have this abiding evil in in this generation that we read about and in our generation as well that evil still abounds and that many places that we turn even in our own lives there is evil all around. But notice in verses 23 through 29 the unsurpassing power of God over evil. God cannot be stopped by evil. Verses 23 through 27, we see that God's power is displayed through those who have faith. And Jesus said to him, If you can, all things are possible to him who believes. Immediately the boy's father cried out and said, I do believe. Help my unbelief. When Jesus saw that a crowd was rapidly gathering, He rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You deaf and mute spirit, I command you, come out of him and do not enter him again. After crying out and throwing him into terrible convulsions, it came out, and the boy became so much like a corpse that most of them said, He is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and raised him, and he got up. Jesus previously had given a glimpse into the solution. Okay, for the nine disciples, oh, unbelieving generation, if you would just trust me more, you would be able to cast this demon out. <clears throat> he continues to show the reason that this demon could not be cast out by turning to the man now in verse 23. If you can, the man said in verse 22, if you can do anything, please take pity on us and help us. He says, if you can, all things are possible for those who believe. So the problem has to do, clearly, with unbelief. And the solution is found in the person of Jesus Christ. 
You see, this man had put his trust not in Jesus Christ, but in his disciples. Saying, I'm trusting these guys to cast out this demon and they're not doing it. So if you can do anything, Jesus says, I can do whatever I please. So don't say, if I can. You need to believe. And I'll show you what I can do. Turn over to Mark chapter 10. And notice God's surpassing power over evil. Nothing can come between God and His purposes. Chapter 10, verse 23. This is after Jesus had talked to the rich young ruler. And Jesus, looking around, said to His disciples, How hard it will be for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at His words. But Jesus answered again and said to them, Children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And they were even more astonished and said to Him, Then who? Who can be saved? And looking at them, Jesus said, With people it is impossible but not with God. All things are possible with God. You see, the solution to all of the evils in this world, the solution to our very salvation is found in the person of Jesus Christ. It's not found in all the people that that He has sent to do His work. It's not found in all the resources that He's given to do His work. The solution is found in the person of of Jesus Christ. And so in verse 24 of our chapter, chapter 9 of Mark, we see that the, the man, the father, understands his problem and he understands the source of the solution and gives really a great response. Immediately the boy's father cried out and said, I do believe. Help my unbelief. Have you ever felt like this man? You've had a mixture of both belief and unbelief. You know, human faith is never going to be perfect. There's never going to be a time when we say, I believe you perfectly, God. And so there's always going to be this mixture of faith, belief and unbelief. Of faith and doubt. They're often mixed. And this man replies with a profound statement. He expresses his need for faith. He's saying, Jesus, I I do believe you, but but I still have this remnant, this this part that remains that still uh, fails in belief, that that I I, I do not believe you as I should. And so he, he rightly asks Jesus, help my unbelief. We would do well to mimic him. To when things, when we doubt in times of trouble or in times of prosperity, where are you, God? We would do well to, to be like this man and turn to God. Turn to our Savior, Jesus Christ, and say, God, I do believe you. I do. But help my unbelief because I know that, that the source of my faith is not from within me. I can't just muster up more faith within myself. I need to turn to You because You are the source of my faith. 
And in verse 25, we see that Jesus acts quickly. Uh, he sees the crowd rapidly gathering, and so He wants to take care of this quickly, probably, probably because He doesn't want to bring about more unnecessary popularity. Remember, Jesus is here for a purpose. He's, he's uh, coming from Mount Hermon at the, the, the northern part of Israel, and now He knows that he's, His way is headed towards the cross in Jerusalem. And He has a purpose to go there. And before that can be done, He has to teach His disciples about what's happening. Because they can't see the the cross of Jesus Christ and see what happens there in the resurrection and not understand what's going on. Because Jesus has left His Word with them. They're the the recipients of of this Word and they need to understand it. So He wants to take them aside as we'll see in the the following verses in verse 30-32. Jesus in verses 28 through, uh, uh, I'm sorry, in verse 27 shows his power by healing this man. He raises him from the ground. He gets up. Probably not that he was dead, but that he looked like he was dead. That's why people said. Um, that's why people said that. So here's the problem: the disciples can't cast this demon out, and they, this man comes to Jesus. Why can't they do it? And Jesus says, "As a result of their unbelief, yes." But let me show you how that unbelief is expressed. We see that in verses 28 and 29. The disciples get a further understanding of why this this demon was not cast out. Notice verse 28. When he came into the house, his disciples began questioning him privately. Why could we not drive it out? And he said to them, This kind cannot come out by anything but prayer. The disciples failed to understand what was happening here. That's why they went up to Jesus. Why couldn't we do it? We tried the same thing you did. We, we might have even said the same words, you deaf and mute spirit. I command you to come out and never enter him again. But, but it didn't work. Why did it work for you and not us? And Jesus says, well, for one, this spirit was a lot more powerful than, than the spirits that you've been working with. But... Two, this kind can only come out by prayer. That's his answer. This kind can only come out by prayer. The disciples uh, failed to see what God was doing. Many times in our lives, we fail to obey God just because we're defiant. We know what we're supposed to do, but we don't do it. But but sometimes, I think here with the disciples, they failed to obey God. They failed to do what God told them to do. He said, go and cast out demons. And they failed to do it. And it wasn't because they were being defiant. No, I'm not going to do that. They, they, they failed because they lacked understanding. And that's why they come and ask Jesus. And the same thing is true for us. <clears throat> there are times when we don't fully understand how it all works. We don't understand what God is doing and so we can, we can fail in our ability to, to obey God, but that doesn't give us an excuse. Right action has to begin with a right understanding. <clears throat> so Jesus had shown that their problem was unbelief and now He gives further explanation by showing the source of their problem. That is, at the end of verse 29, their lack of prayer. This can only come out by prayer, which indicates that they weren't 
praying. They weren't trusting God fully. They weren't turning to God and saying, God, help us here. This, this power can only happen through you. And so we could simply state the relationship here between belief and prayer as this. The expression of our faith or our belief is prayer. The way that we show that we believe is by praying. So the disciples could have been going through all the motions and yet failed to show their dependence upon God through prayer. And God said, let me show you something here. It's not going to work. You have to trust in Me. And I've said before that one of the clearest expressions of your faith and of my faith is the amount of time that we spend in private praying. What is it like when no one can hear you but God. How much time do you spend in private prayer to God? Now, it's good to pray in public settings. It's good to come to Wednesday night and and pray as a church body. But other than before your meals, how often do you pray to God in private? Because that is a good indication of how much faith you have in God. Because no one's around. No one can see you. No one knows what's going on. No one's going to find out at another time. Only God does. How much time do you spend in private prayer? Because if you're just going through the motions and telling everyone, hey, I'm a strong Christian and I will will never fall away from, from Christ and yet you're not spending any time in private prayer, then you are saying with your actions to God that, that, that I kind of believe in you. I have a, a, a little bit of faith in you, but I don't fully believe because I'm not praying to you on my own like you've called me to do. You, you become very similar to this man. I'm not saying that your situation is hopeless. This man's situation was not hopeless. He turned to God in verse 24. He turned to Jesus Christ and said, I do believe. See, I do believe you, God, but help my unbelief. I still fail. So if you lack faith, if you fail to to spend time in private prayer, here's the solution. It's very simple. Pray to God and ask Him for help. Lord, help my unbelief. The expression of our faith and the remedy for more faith is prayer. We must recognize that the source of our faith is in God, and so we need to turn to Him. Now, in verses 30 through 32, we see the coming evil upon Jesus and His power over it. Jesus tells again, He says why He's teaching His disciples, verse 31, as they're on their way down to Galilee, down through Galilee. Verse 31, For He was teaching His disciples and telling them, The Son of Man is to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill Him. And when He has been killed, He will rise three days later. So His purpose in pulling the disciples aside and teaching them is so that He can explain more about what's going to happen. I am going to die. I, the Son of Man... I'm going to be handed over. Okay, That could be by Judas. could be the sense that God is handing him over to death to be killed. And when I'm killed, I will rise three days later. This is the second time that, that Mark records that, 
So Jesus tells the disciples about what's going to happen. The first time we saw in chapter 8, verse 31. And He's going to have to tell them again because they still don't understand. Look at their response, verse 32. But they did not understand the statement and they were afraid to ask Him. They did not understand. Now perhaps they were afraid um, because they didn't want to think about the terrible future. Have you ever had a, a physical problem or a problem with your teeth and you didn't want to go to the dentist because you didn't want to find out about the future pain that was going to happen or you didn't want to go to the doctor find out more problems. Maybe that's what's going on here. But probably they're afraid because remember what happened last time that Jesus told the disciples? Peter, on behalf of the disciples, says he, he rebukes Jesus. That will never happen to you, Jesus. And Jesus says, Peter, get behind me. Actually, he says, Satan, get behind me. Because you're not speaking the things of God. You don't have God's interest in mind. You have man's interests. And so perhaps they were afraid to ask him, are you sure this is going to happen? Tell us more about this. Because they were afraid of of getting rebuked themselves. So what we have here is a serious problem where a man has a son who, who has this demon, this evil thing that has happened to him. And Jesus is the one who can heal this boy, this man. And it happens um, It happens when people put their trust in Jesus. That's what He requires of them. You put your trust in Me by praying to Me, to My Father, and then I will do it. But I want you to see that you have to be dependent on the Father. Three principles that I think we can draw from this passage to apply to our lives. Number one, sin will be as sin will be powerful for as long as we live sin will be powerful as long as we live you know the disciples the three disciples peter james and john came down from a great experience probably one that they would never forget perhaps the greatest experience of their life to that point and they come down from this huge experience to this world of evil and they're they're brought to their knees quickly. So don't be surprised when you come down from a spiritual mountain experience where you have seen a glimpse of God's glory, where you recognize God for who He is and you praise Him, that, that there is not evil waiting for you at the door. Don't be surprised because you live in a world of evil. And you will as long as you're alive struggle for each of us is to stop fighting. We could, we could trust in God's sovereignty and in His plan so much so that we say, well, God, you've already got it won. You're, you're going to win the battle. It's all taken care of, so I'm just going to be sitting back and watching it happen. I'm not going to struggle for the faith. Why bother? It's already won. And all of our focusing... On, on Jesus and His coming greatness like the disciples had thought about and saw for themselves, we can't neglect or be unaware of the present problems in our life. The present problems of sin and the complete dependence that we need upon God to overcome those sins. Number two, the world's view of Christ is determined often by the world's view of us. 
The world's idea of what Christ is like is often determined by what they see in us. Look at verse 18 again with me. And whenever it seizes him, it slams him to the ground and he foams at the mouth and grinds his teeth and stiffens out. I told your disciples to cast it out and they could not do it. Both the scribes who were arguing in verse 15 and this man, they both expected to find Jesus, but they don't find Him. Instead, they find the disciples. And so they transfer their expectations. Well, if Jesus can do it and you guys are so close to to Jesus then you should be able to do it too. So, the point here is is that, that when people look at us, they say, you have associated yourself with Christ, then this must be what Christ is like. The way that you live must be what Christ is like. And you know what? There is some truth to that. Obviously, we are not exactly like Christ, but we are supposed to be be becoming Christ-like. There is a sense in which we are being like Christ and, and, and that we are His representatives in that way, right? So how we live matters. Because your neighbors and your family members know that you've made a choice to follow God. They know it. And so they watch how you react to situations. They watch how you respond And then they make an immediate judgment call about God, about our God. They say, if that's what you're like, then that must be what what God is like. If, If, for example, if you are so loving to that church that you go to and you are so giving of yourself, then God must be even more so that that giving. See how that can work? But also it can work negatively. Where they could look in us and see, wow, you are a very critical person. All you care about is yourself. And if you're serving a God like that, that must be what He is like too. I don't want to have anything to do with Him. Sometimes the only understanding of God that people will ever see is your life. And so you need to be a good representative of God. How you live matters. Number three, the danger in a church that has been around for a long time is that it, be, it can become complacent. The danger in a church that's been around for a long time is, is that it can become complacent. What was happening here with the disciples? They once had been casting out demons through the power of God. And probably at that time, they recognized that, that it was God who allowed them to do this work. But over time, they, they made a subtle transfer. And this is very important to understand. Instead of seeing the power coming from God, now they saw the power coming from God's gift. God gave me the authority to cast out these demons. And so they subtly shifted to, God, I don't need you as much. I'm not trusting you in the the day-to-day things. I'm not trusting you in these evil spirits anymore. I'm trusting in the gift that you've given me. Okay, so now here's the danger that comes in our church. Okay, we can because we've been around for a long time, we can start to to shift subtly shift our focus and our trust from God to God's gifts. And we say God 
thank you. We, we've been trusting you. We've seen your power work through this church over the ages. It's been amazing. But now we've, we've subtly pushed God aside to a point where now we're saying, thank you for all these resources and these gifts, these abilities that you've given to us. Now we'll just trust in those. Now we don't say it like that. But it comes out like this. It is impossible for us to grow this church. Do you realize how many obstacles there are to us growing this church? We don't have all the great programs like other churches. We don't have special music. We don't have a vibrant youth group. We don't have a traveling choir or a great location or a large staff or, or perfect facilities. Whatever excuse any church can give. We can't grow this church. It's impossible. And you know what? You're right. You can't. It is impossible for you. But it is not possible for those who believe. It's not possible for Jesus Christ. God's showing us today that the power that is needed to grow the church does not come from programs or youth groups or great bubbly people or newly remodeled kitchens or special music programs or gifted leaders or even spectacular VBSs. That's not where God's power comes from. The power to grow a church comes from God. And so that's who we need to trust in, not all of all our great history or programs or whatever. God's power is displayed among those who believe. And our belief is expressed in our prayer to God. So, so here's a specific application for each of us today. When was the last time that you expressed your faith in God by praying for God's hand to be on this church. When was the last time that you prayed for God's power to be seen in this church? When was the last time that you prayed for the lost souls in your circle of influence? Or in your community? I'm not talking about the God bless Royal Oak prayer. Okay, We would never know if God ever answered that prayer because it's so generic. I'm talking about specific people you know. Lord, please help me as I talk to my neighbor, uh, Sharon. Or, or God, help me with my relative, Jeff, who needs to hear the Gospel. Or, or with my coworker James, or whoever. We need to be praying, believing Christians. And you know what? God's power is displayed among those type of people. People who believe in God to the point that they pray to Him. Don't stop fighting against sin. It will never go away as long as you live. Don't stop believing in God's power over sin and don't stop praying. Trust in God and you will see His great power shown even in this church. And if you fail... In this area, if you lack faith, then here is your prayer. Verse 24. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Let's pray. Our Father, it is difficult for us to trust You because You are not seen. And, and even trust that you are working in, our, in this church is difficult to see because 
we can't put it on a spreadsheet. We can't count up the dollars. It, it, a lot of growth happens invisibly. And so we have to trust that as we are faithful to what You have called us to do, that You will show Your power and show Your strength in building up the, the faith of believers and even expanding uh, the number of people who are here in this church. Lord, Your desire is that we are in conformity to what You want for us. And so we are sobered to think that, that we have at times shifted our focus from trusting in You to shifting our focus and our confidence into what You have given us, whether that be our abilities or the amount of money that we have or our history or whatever it is, we admit to You that, that we have not trusted You as we should. And we ask for Your forgiveness. And we ask that You would help us to turn in faith to You. And that we would not just pray before meals or in public settings, but that we would take uh, time each day to express our faith to You by praying to You. Even when no one hears, even when no one knows about it, help us, Lord. Help our unbelief. May You be exalted and glorified through our service of You and our gifts that we give to You. Not that You needed anything, but, but so that we can express our love for You and our dependence upon You. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Hymn number.